0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have a very special friend and distinguished scholar I want to introduce to you today. He is Dr. Robert Lewis Wilkham. Dr. Wilkin is the William R. Keenan Professor of the History of Christianity Emeritus at the University of Virginia. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Robert.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Pleasure to join you.
0: Now, we're going to talk about your brand new book that's just hot off the press from Yale University Press, but before we do that, I want folks to get just a little sense of who you are. You and I have worked together in several different ventures across the years. Uh, You were, for a while, I think, the chair of the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology.
1: That's right, and I brought you onto the board.
0: You did, and uh, (laughs) I'll never forget those meetings we had, working with our friends uh, Carl Broughton and Robert Jensen and so many others. And you also are currently the chairman of the board of the Institute on Religion and Public Life. And that is the group that publishes the journal known as First Things. Right. So I'm hoping all of our listeners will already be subscribers and readers to First (laughs) Things. But if they're not, Robert, give them just a a brief uh, promotion as to why they should do so.
1: Well, First Things is a uh, monthly uh, publication. Uh, that deals with um, uh, religion and public life, primarily in the United States. It was founded by the late Father Richard John Newhouse, and um, it has uh, maintained a a very distinctive voice to try to bring uh, the concerns of religious people, especially Christians and Jews, um, into the public arena. It's um, broadly ecumenical, in fact, Many of our authors are evangelical as well as Catholic, but then of course we have Jewish uh, writers. And in the recent uh, years, since the new editor after the death of Father Newhouse, we've tra- tried to bring in some Muslim writers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: though that's moving very slowly. But um, it uh, has general articles, it has poetry, mm-hmm. it has
2: uh, book editorial
1: reviews? comments, it has book reviews, mm-hmm. and for anyone who is interested in, in the, the role of religion in American life, First Things is definitely a uh, a must read
0: I absolutely agree and I would commend it to all of our listeners, um, even our theological students who are trying to build libraries for the future and get on the right uh, magazines, there's something about First Things every time I get it, there's something in there I really want to read and I never just put it aside I always come back to it So Very good. that's great now, let's get to your book. Before before we talk about your most recent book, I want folks to know that you have written many books. You're a historian, and you might say just a word about your own training. I know you were a student of Yaroslav Pelikan at one time.
1: Yes. Uh, I went to the University of Chicago uh, some time ago, now in the 60s, and uh, had the great privilege of studying with Yaroslav Pelikan, who uh, had... Uh, a very distinguished career as a historian of Christian thought. One of the things that I, I think his probably greatest contribution is that he always was an exponent of the main line orthodox tradition of Christianity, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is, of the Nicene Creed. And um he had a powerful influence on on uh, many, many uh people in the academy, but he had a wider readership and uh I had the privilege of uh studying with him and um remained a close friend all his years, and saw him really just a few months before, or six weeks before he died, I kind of paid my last respects. Yeah. But he had a powerful influence on me. And in some ways, this book, which um, has a, a large a large part of it, deals with Eastern Christianity. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Pelican was uh, from Slavic background, and later in life, he had become um, Eastern Orthodox. And so in some ways, that, Uh, influence is, is, is apparent
0: in this book. The title of the book we're going to talk about is The First Thousand Years, A Global History of Christianity. I wanted to mention some of your other books, and maybe you could put this in the context of your earlier writings, because I do think they're related. One is The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. Which was a fascinating book when I first read it, and another one, *The Spirit of e- of Early Christian Thought*. How does this book relate to these work well, works? Well, I
1: think um, the uh, uh, Christians as the Romans saw them was uh, a book written uh, when I was relatively young, and what I uh, had begun to realize was that how someone is viewed is an important part of who one is. Uh, mm. We know people who don't have any sense at all about how other people view them, and we realize that there is something deficient in their self-understanding. And so I, I set out to write a book on how the Romans perceived Christians when Christianity first came on the scene. And I deliberately tried to understand the perspective of, of the Romans, and not sort of correct whatever things they said by what I knew about Christianity. Mm. what that taught me is just how important it was to see things from different perspectives, that is, from the perspective of the Jews, or later on, the perspective of the Muslims. Mm. And so throughout this book, you'll you'll see that I, especially in dealing with Islam, I I think this is probably one of the first general histories of this period that, that really gives Islam makes it integral to the story. And mm-hmm. so I tried very sympathetically to present uh, the beginnings of Islam and what Islam was about so that one could understand uh, what what a, a remarkable uh, transition this was in the history of, of our, our civilization. Of course, it had uh, very sad consequences for Christians, but um, nevertheless, one has to understand it. And then the other book, um, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, was an effort to try to explain how Christians thought about the things that they believed. Um, yeah. Christians think differently than, say, a philosopher thinks, or, uh, or a historian thinks, or a legal scholar thinks. So, uh, for one thing, uh, in fact, probably the main theme of the book is that it was really the Bible more than any other factor that, that formed the Christian mind that formed the way Christians understood the world. Mm. And um, so that was written um, for people who want to want to just try to find, how is it that how do Christians think about, about the world, about creation, about God, about human beings, about the person of Christ, the Church, all of these, it's not so much a history of Christian thought, it's a history of how Christians came to think the way they do, which then deals with a lot of the topics from the history of Christian thought. But this book is uh, much more consciously an attempt to try to give a a narrative history, to tell Mm -hmm. a story.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the emphasis is on persons and events, uh, institutions, uh, uh, art, architecture. I have a chapter, for example, on the building of the first hospitals, which is really an introduction. I mean, a... Uh, something that Christians uh, created.
0: Music and worship. Have a copy
1: well. on chapter on music and worship yep. on architecture yep. and art. So, um, and and the, and, the, and the chapters are short. I, I I'm mm-hmm. writing for readers. There are no footnotes. You know, when trying to, to tell, tell an interesting story.
0: That makes it readable, but but as as I was reading it, when I got to the end of the chapter, I wanted to say, why didn't he say more about that? You <laughs> you, you kind of piqued my interest, and then you went on to something else, but you had to do that if you are covering a thousand years.
1: Well, yeah, that was a very self-conscious. I limited myself to about 15 pages, double-spaced, yeah. and um, what I couldn't fit in, and I, I couldn't fit in, but if you're writing for readers who don't have a lot of background, you have to be very disciplined to, to keep the story moving yeah. so that you don't kind of, sort of begin to lose interest so two thirds of the way through a chapter. This way, no, I mean, I'm pleased you said that. I mean, you, you, go you accomplished
0: that. your goal with me anyway.
1: Right now,
0: you know another thing. I
1: wasn't <laughs> writing for people like you who are so learned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, another thing I want to say uh, when when one studies uh, history, the history of Christianity, there's a kind of geographical pattern, a trajectory. You begin in Jerusalem. You follow Paul's missionary journeys. You go to Rome. A little bit of Greece. A little bit of Carthage. Uh, you you give chapters and a great treatment to places that are really not very often known, but are really important. And I wonder if you'd say a word about places like Armenia, Georgia, Ethiopia.
1: Well, I think um, that's certainly one of the the main purposes of the book, is that most histories of the early church focus on Christianity, starting in Jerusalem, as you said, then spreading around the, the Roman Empire. That means basically... Around the Mediterranean world, and then about the year five hundred um, Christianity begins to move into uh northern Europe uh, mm-hmm. into what became Germany and France and the British Isles. But what many historians overlook, at least in their general treatments, is that Christianity spread east mm-hmm. didn't only spread west,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um the two great languages within the Roman Empire were Latin and Greek, which are the languages that have really been foundational for our whole civilization. But the great language um, of the people who lived east of Jerusalem was Syriac. Syriac mm. is a Semitic language, closely mm-hmm. related to Hebrew and to Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And it was the Syriac language then that the people spoke in Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, that whole area there. and Christians it spread there just as rapidly and put down um, equally deep roots as it did in the west and then it spread into areas that weren't even associated with the Syriac language it spread north into Armenia, Armenia is a, a country basically um, south of Russia mm-hmm. uh, Georgia which is another country uh, which is on the eastern edge of the Black Sea it spread down, we you know more about Egypt, because Egypt uh, was on the Mediterranean, but there was a whole culture developed up the Nile River, that means as you go south, which was um, Coptic. That is, Coptic was the ancient language of the um, Egyptian people. And from there, it spread south into day mm-hmm. uh Tajikistan I have a couple of uh, images of a of a Uh, a missionary all the way to Tibet. We don't know whether he got there. And it spread into India. Mm. And um, so it's it's not... And then also, if you go north from Greece, it spread into the Slavic-speaking lands. That would be Bulgaria, Ukraine, uh, Russia, uh, uh, countries of that sort. So by the year 1000, that's why I picked that date, Christianity had become, in effect, a world religion. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that from about the year 500, there was a, a very, very ambitious and energetic missionary effort within Christianity. When mm. we study Christianity in the Roman Empire, uh, we we don't really have a mission effort. We have more that the communities grew just As people became interested in Christianity, they married others, and gradually the society changed. So there wasn't really a need for missionaries. But in the East, there were people who went out and they spread the gospel to these distant lands. It's it's a remarkable
2: story.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you in particular about Cyril and Methodius, who not only uh, spread the gospel among the Slavic peoples, but also... Uh, invented an alphabet in doing so. The Cyrillic, right? Well, that's
1: another thing that one discovers, uh, and the Slavic language uh, is is the is the best example. But Armenia would be another one. Christianity can't exist without books, mm. because you have to have the Bible, you have to have uh, books that have the prayers in them, you have to have the stories of the holy men and women, you have to have uh, texts for Christian worship. And um, Cyril and Methodius are most uh, uh, noteworthy because these were men, they were two brothers, they came from Thessalonica, of course, that's the letter to the Thessalonians, the two letters in the New Testament, they came from that city, which in the um, around the year 800 had a strong Slavic-speaking community. So they spoke Greek, which was the language of the region, and they also spoke Slavic. So the emperor asked them to mount a mission into what is today really Moravia or, or Czechoslovakia. And one of the first things they did was to um, translate the Bible into... Well, they first had to create an alphabet, mm-hmm. because there there was no written alphabet for the language. And then when they created the alphabet, then they began to translate the Bible into the... Um, Slavic language is called Old Church Slav- Slavonic, mm-hmm. and that, of course, then is the basis for all the later Slavic languages, and it, it really then made it possible for Christianity to establish itself and for a Christian culture to be built.
0: You spoke a moment ago about the rise of Islam. You have a chapter on that, but also you have a chapter on Arabic speaking Christians. That's not a world that's well known <laughs> in the West. Say no, that's true. That, that. that,
1: of course, is something that, um, I got interested in many, many uh, years ago, and um, we tend to think of Arabic as a uh, Muslim language, but the people who lived in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and even as far as Iran, and then down in Saudi Arabia, these were Syriac-speaking Christians. That is, they prayed in Syriac, they worshipped in Syriac, their Bible was in Syriac, and um when the muslims came in of course they kept their language but after less than a hundred years the society began to adopt arabic as its language and so um they began speaking arabic and as happened elsewhere they began to translate the bible into arabic mm. and that's an extraordinary story because um, we have actually manuscripts um, from some of the monasteries in that area which are the first translations into Arabic of the scriptures um, that were used for congregational worship. And then they began to write their own books in Arabic. And so over the course of 300 years, Christianity really developed an Arabic Christian literary culture.
2: Mm, Uh,
1: And today, um, thanks to uh, uh, scholars in the Middle East as well as in the West, there's a a major effort to edit these texts and to translate them into modern languages so we can read how because they had a completely different challenge than Christians had three, four, five hundred years earlier because they had to interpret the gospel in a culture that was dominated by another religion.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh And so they had Big questions about, you know, do you use the words out of the Quran to speak about Christian things or do you have to find other words? It's
2: a, yeah.
0: It's a yeah. fascinating story. Well, you mentioned the, the work of the hospitals. Samford University, where Beeson Divinity School is located, has both a school of nursing and a school of pharmacy. Oh. And I wonder if you would say a little bit about the sick, the aged, and the poor. That's the title of your chapter on hospitals, health care. Uh, this is fresh on my mind because I've just returned from Rome to uh, the the Synod of Bishops and they they took us to the uh, Basilica of St. Bartholomew Mm -hmm. which was originally a temple to Asclepius in the Roman time became a hospice, a leprosarium in the Middle Ages Mm -hmm. and uh, is still today associated in Rome with healing and hospitals. So talk about how this became a part of that. Well,
2: several things
1: uh, played into that. One is that very early on, I mean, uh, Christians began to give special attention to the poor. I mean, the, the Psalms are filled with statements about uh, caring for the poor, honoring the poor, mm. the, the prophets, uh, the words of Jesus uh, through the New Testament. And um, so early on, it wasn't a matter of just of individual charity, but it was a matter that the churches, uh institutionally began to make place and to provide the means to care for the, the poor people who were much more visible in the ancient society than they are today. Well, somewhere along the line, people began to say, well, there are people who have other kinds of needs, and Christians began to think about those who were sick. And the, the figure that I highlight is a man named Basil,
2: mm-hmm.
1: named Called him Basil the Great. He was a bishop in what is today Turkey. And uh, as a result of a a terrible famine in his region, he um, began to set up uh, institutions to deal with the needs of the people, but he also included um, uh, healing. Mm. And um, so, over the course of uh, 10, 15 years, he actually built. It was called the city. It was an area outside of the city in which they were living in which um, he provided, uh, free of charge, a place where people could stay, where you would have trained physicians and nurses, um, places of food and so forth. And one of the the most significant uh, offshoots of this development is that um, illness... Came to be destigmatized oh. because many people thought that if a person was ill, it was somehow their fault, mm. and um, and so this is a profound shift in attitudes. Mm. So it wasn't simply that you had an institution which served the sick, the infirm, the aged, but it changed the perception of people in the society.
0: And that's a wonderful tradition of it Christian is. care that continues into our own time. Well, we're almost out of time, Robert. But I, you know, you ended your book uh, in 1000. Now we all know a very decisive event happened 54 years later, 1054. The schism, the great schism between East and West. And I wonder if you could just kind of look forward a little bit out of the 1000 years to that event yeah. and well, what happened um, after that.
1: Given the way this book was. Uh, Conceived and then finally executed. Um, what I, instead of ending with that particular event, uh, the the formal divide between Greek speaking Christianity and Western speaking Christianity. Basically, what I did was to say that over the course of the first thousand years, Christianity, which had begun in Jerusalem and spread throughout the Roman Empire and then into other parts of the world, had broken down into three large cultural and geographical areas. And it was these three that existed up until modern times, and they are the Syriac and the Arabic Middle East, that would be Mm -hmm. what we call the Middle East today, then the Greek and the Slavic, Eastern Europe, and then the Latin West. Mm. And uh, there are some exceptions. Ethiopia doesn't fall into this. Armenia Mm. doesn't fall into this. Mm. Georgia doesn't fall into this. But those were the three main areas. And what I wanted to say was that as a result, primarily of the rise of Islam, each of these areas had a different future.
2: Mm.
1: For the people who lived in the Middle East, they were under the rule of Islam, and Mm -hmm. still are. Mm -hmm. For the people who were in the Greek-speaking and the Slavic East, they were not initially under the rule of Islam, but Islam, under the Turks, conquered Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and basically eliminated Christianity in one of its ancient homelands. And so it was only in the Latin West, that is, the Christianity of the Middle Ages in the West, the Latin Western Christianity, that was able to um, control its own fate, mm. and over the years, then Christians in that part of the world forgot <laughs> mm-hmm. that Christianity had really begun in the Middle East,
2: yeah. and
1: uh, and so one of the point of the book, where I end up, is that if we keep in mind Jerusalem, which yeah. is where it began, which is midway between both worlds. Uh, we won't forget the our Christian brothers and sisters in
0: other parts of the world. That's a wonderful thought on which to conclude this conversation. I've been talking with Professor Robert Louis Wilkin. He is the author of The First Thousand Years, A Global History of Christianity. It's available in both hardback and paperback from Yale University Press. It's a wonderful read, a comprehensive narrative that'll tell you so many things about uh, Christianity as it developed from the first centuries through the first millennium. Thank you, Robert, for this wonderful conversation.
1: much, Timothy. It's a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.